My handle is Jonathan Blade. So we would eat our bagged salads in our freezing cold apartment and we'd wash it all down with Old Crow bourbon, which costs $7.11 for the fifth. Welcome to my podcast. I recently had the opportunity to get together with one of my buddies from my John Favreau Swingers days, who also happened to be one of my stand-up comedy contemporaries. Now, in life, if you're lucky, there are some outsized personalities that stick with you. Brian Dirty Earn Jabowski is one of those people for me. I immediately thought of him when I started having guests on the podcast as someone who'd be fun to talk to on the show. Brian is a master storyteller, which is why in the stand-up days I knew that he would immediately take to the stage, and why I have a feeling that he will take to this medium like a fish to water. Brian, welcome to my handle is Jonathan Blake. How are you? Thanks, Tony. I'm fine. How are you? I am dandy. I'm, I'm excited because uh, I think that this is going to be a good time. What's shaking well, in I your neck? Me on. Yeah, of course. Uh, not a lot. Not a lot is going on over here. We're doing uh, the same thing everybody is this time of year, getting ready for the holidays, that kind of thing. Which is beautiful. The, the holidays are a, a ripe condition for narrative in themselves. So with you, of course, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because of that aforementioned outsized personality and I've met many different storytellers because of years in the service industry and working with drunk people but <laughs> the uh, the master of the art of the, all the people I've met is actually you now I don't know if it was Thank you. hanging out with the the birds that made you the master that you are or your experiences <laughs> in the navy but uh yeah it's a, it's a cumulative <laughs> cumulative thing I would say that I was the class clown, but I, I seem to have been in a class full of clowns. And so it was always a, a, a competition of one-upsmanship. And so that was kind of the breeding ground. The military was the finishing school. I, I happened to be very close friends with two people who were uh, the greatest storytellers I've ever heard in my life. And just kind of listening to their cadences and how they brought it, brought their audience in and where they punched you know, to, to, to get effect. And uh, I just picked up that kind of rhythm from them, I guess. In oh, uh, so we're in uh, in Eilat in Israel. It's uh, it's like this uh, the one city in in Israel that's on the Red Sea is called Eilat. It's a resort town. It's an Israeli resort town. So there's all these beautiful women, everything. We took a a, a bus up to Jerusalem because I mean you're that close, you have to go. And so we, we go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and this is a crazy place. It's a church that's built on top of the spot where Jesus was supposedly crucified. But every single sect of Christianity has a, what they call a station in there. They have a different, the, the, the thing has been chopped into like 17 pieces that are just separated by invisible lines. Like this is ours, this is yours. And it's the craziest thing because they all hate each other and they're all jealous, uh, jealously guarding their own territories and trying to uh, uh, poach more territory from the others within the walls of this building. So they never help each other. They're always mean to each other. There's a ladder over the front door. So up on the, when you come in above the door, there's a ledge and on that ledge there's a ladder that goes up to like the roof. 
and it's been there for three centuries because nobody will will move it. Like they, I didn't put it there. Like you can look this up, <laughs> Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And there's always and uh, and all kind of stuff. Eventually, so eventually, what they had to do is they had to give the keys to a Muslim family to come and open the place up and close it at the night because none of them could agree on who would get the keys. So like the holiest spot in Christendom, the keys are owned by a Muslim family. <laughs> I wonder how they decide which uh, denominations get access to the, like, oh, you have, you've reached the, the number of converts that allow you to have a little section of the, mm -hmm. like you're out in the garden because you're relatively new. As far as I can tell, everything is, is decided by fisticuffs. So... <laughs> There's that. I thought about it for a little while in preparation for this this podcast, and I was like, well, maybe is it the salesman personality that gives you the skill? But it's not just that, because a salesman is selling you something that you believe mm -hmm. or they want you to believe is true. And if they're really, really good at it, then you believe that that is the truth. But for a storyteller, they tell you something, and it doesn't have to be true. In fact, Oftentimes you're like, that can't possibly be true, but you don't care. Right. I feel like that might be well, like a separate or tangential art. I, I Well, I've thought about that one in particular a lot because I've tried to do sales and I'm terrible at it. And the skill of the salesperson, they are a storyteller, but they have to make friends in about 30 seconds. And I don't think I have that skill. And they're also attempting to to sell you something. And the trick for them is, is that they believe it in their, in their heart of hearts. They believe that whatever they're selling you is the greatest thing ever. And I wasn't able to take my, I wasn't able to suspend my disbelief that I wasn't doing something other than trying to make some money. Too and cynical so to be a salesman, good. huh? I, uh, yeah, maybe that's what it was. Maybe, maybe it was cynicism. I never could put my, my finger on it because I knew people and was very good friends with people who were very good salespeople. And I never was able to pick up that, that trick from them. My storytelling was more of a bring everybody in, get everybody on your side. And now you can take them into some really, really weird places. And they're going to go along with you because we're, we're friends. But that for me, especially on stage would take seven eight minutes to get people on my state on my side and then we you know i never started out telling the craziest stories you start out telling a, a story that everyone can relate to before you take them into unique horrible situations before and, you're uh, drunk before well the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well the, the the drinking seemed to at least for me accelerate my personal comfort level with standing in front of strangers. It's, you know, telling stories to strangers is different than telling stories to your friends. And, uh, and so the trick was a drink or two. And once you get past three drinks, you're now, they might still be on your, your side for a while, but eventually it's gonna go off the rails. Off the rails is not good uh, as a professional standard if you're really getting paid for a gig. But man, for uh, some, some amateur at length comedy off the rails is uh it's kind of a beautiful disaster it, it it is it is a beautiful disaster i think my favorite comedy shows were the ones where where the performer is just crashing and burning the audience is completely lost and from the back of the bar you can hear the other com comedians laughing their asses <laughs> off because they are enjoying it so much um 
but not the kind where you crash and burn so much that somebody eventually has to come up and get you off stage. I've done, <laughs> I've done, I've done both of these. As you know. And sometimes it's, it's even better to yeah. have that one loud person who gets it in a sea of silence or like uh, yes. bewilderedness than uh, yeah. even a great show. Yeah, it's it's that's a lifeline. <laughs> you you cling to that one laugh. <laughs> oh man. Um, so, but just to, to backpedal and, and talk about the storytelling thing, it's like I've been thinking about the variety of storytelling and how it exists because it's there is the salesmanship thing, but there, but at what point do you call something storytelling, and when, at what point do you call it something else? Because musical lyrics is a form of storytelling. You could say all a variety of, of art forms are storytelling, but in the strictest sense, what we're talking about is just the verbal type of storytelling. I guess, I guess, you know, even interpretive dance, that kind of stuff is, is, is storytelling. Oh yeah. It all encapsulates uh, inside. It all encapsulates, but uh, it's, you know, where's the line? What is, what is the line? So I've, I've been trying to think about how, how that is. Well, so for me, the thing about storytelling is at least for me personally, it is this thing about getting people on your side and making people see the commonalities or or making them able to put themselves in your shoes you know if you go to a frat party and there's all these frat boys singing along with with bob marley you're, you're like wow they actually they're, they're actually feeling this which is bizarre because this is a song about slavery or something no. and they had no nothing about this and uh, and they're they're buying in and uh not know, even my, listening my to the hip-hop. lyrics while they're singing it yeah, not even listening to. Yeah, it's bizarre, but they have they have a feeling of uh, of shared of a shared experience, which they do not have. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, it relates to everybody. My my favorite hip hop song is "Juicy" by Biggie Smalls. What the hell do I know about a rags to rich richest story in Brooklyn? I don't know anything about it, but I for some reason I sing along with this song like I do. Uh, so the job of the storyteller is to get people believe and uh, buy in to the narrative. And so that's what I would try to do when I would tell a story. You know, as a tangent, you know, Biggie Smalls as a as a yeah. performer was a storyteller. That was, you know, Absolutely. not every rapper is is on the stage yeah. delivering narrative, but Biggie right. Smalls did. Like uh, one of my favorites from the long, long ago is Scarface, and Scarface's uh-huh. big thing was was telling stories on the microphone, like crazy sure. ones. He has a song called uh, "Good Girl Gone Bad." That's just a narrative. It's a, it's a movie narrative. I always had a uh, a visual narrative to that story in my mind when I heard the song because right. it's so evocative. Yeah, right. that's a gift. Right. It is a it is a gift. I mean, just just staying in the in the in the hip hop idiom is uh, it, it, from the very beginning there was there was a different breed of cat that was doing storytelling, whether it was uh, KRS One or. Um, or Slick Rick. These were these were to me were more storytellers than than just uh, you know doing the bombast and yeah, that that's stuff, how Slick Rick enjoyed. sold himself. Yeah, um, here Indian girl in my mind right now. So another thing I think about is brevity of of words. Um, like, do not put de- details in unless they are pertinent to the story. You know, you go through school and you're forced to read all these books because they're considered classic, but some of them have so much exposition. You're like, why, why are we doing this? This has nothing to do with anything. And so if you're telling a story, you say there was a white house. You don't need to say anything more. The, 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 the listener has already conjured a white house within their mind. 
They've populated all the details. You do not need to add any of the details to the White House unless it is pertinent to the story. And that's where I think a lot of storytellers or, or attempted storytellers fall down is they just fill it full of so much exposition that you're you don't like, think the texture brings people about? in. I, I don't think it does. I, 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 I've never seen anyone who's added tons of expedition and been able to hold my attention. Now that might be my own ADD, but I think it's, it's always been more successful. Well, one of, one of the one of the reasons I I stopped doing comedy on a regular basis is that so much of my onstage persona was about my was about my dating life. For lack, dating is probably stretching it, but well, that was um, the era in which you were doing stand up. Is that right? Right, but once you once you fall in love and get married, you start going through your set list. You're like I can't tell that one. <laughs> can't tell that one. Can't tell that one. What am I left with here? I'm left with thanks. Have a good night. Uh, the interesting thing about that is there's more money. If you're actually going to do comedy for a living, the blue stuff just doesn't pay. Like, it's really fun working college crowds and college-age crowds and, and talking about all sorts of crazy stuff. But you need to be, you need to be I Love Raymond if you're going to make real money. Yeah, to do corporate uh, gigs and cruise ship comedy. Um right. I can't write mm-hmm. that because I don't find a lot of that stuff funny. And even now yeah. that I'm old and, and dry, uh, I still don't find any of that stuff funny. So right. I, I couldn't even do it now. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. I, I, I tried writing straight bits. I, I, they, they were fun. I, I liked doing observational. I did enjoy some observational stuff. Mostly my observations were about the really bizarre me- metaphors or phrases that turn up probably in every language, but specific to us, the English language. And I remember when I thought this up, I was thinking I was trying to quit smoking and I was going to quit cold turkey. And I was like, wow, how did the temperature of a bird get involved with (laughs) stopping something? So I started looking around and there's just so many of these where if you step back and you look at it, you're like, I don't understand how anybody can come to this country and learn this language because they're going to be hit with these, what we consider common, so common that you don't even think about them. Uh, phrases that are nonsensical and uh, this is pre really pre real internet. So I didn't really actually have a way to look up why this thing exists uh-huh. or to find out that Jerry yeah. Seinfeld did that bit 30 years ago. Cause that's exactly oh, the kind of probably. thing that Jerry Seinfeld would write. That is, that is precisely, that is precisely it. I'm, I'm actually rewatching Seinfeld right now. And, you know, he does his little bits before mm-hmm. in the early years, like the first five seasons, whatever. He would start and end every show with, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes of his routine. And it just seems so dated that it just that style of humor that no, nobody really does that anymore, do they? Uh, Stand up comedy is an evolving beast. And um, yeah, a lot of what is funny now is not or a lot of what is popular right now is not really stand up comedy. Last year, the year before, when Hannah Gatsby did Nanette. I don't know if you've seen her uh-huh. her first Netflix special, Nanette. Nanette no, is it's like a TED talk. Like she's very yeah. she she knows the art of stand up inside and out. You can tell that she yeah. does. She she actually uh, develops a form for uh, using stand up to give yeah. her TED talk, her emotional right. TED talk on stage. Yeah. But it's not funny. 
Like it's right. it's good. Nanette is brilliant and it's accepted as yeah. brilliant, but people call it stand up. It's not stand up. It's mm-hmm. it's something mm-hmm. else. And then you have um Bo Burnham's special from I saw that. this year, Inside. I wouldn't yeah. categorize Inside as stand up either. Also I, brilliant. I, 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 yes, I, I would I agree with that. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't categorize it as stand up, but it, it was uh it was you could not stop watching. It was super interesting and unique. It was unique. It. And then, of course, Dave Chappelle's last very controversial special is something that yeah. I would also not categorize as stand-up. Like, sure, just, Dave uh, is just, smart. Uh, Dave knows he's smart. And so he, sure. he kind of like beat his audience over the head with, with how offended he was that anybody could second-guess him and created right. this special around that that was like right. 40%, 30% stand-up and like 70% pontificate, like outraged pontification. And, sure, uh, sure. But that's that's Dave doing the current art form that is stand up. Like he's evolving with the art form too, which sucks. I I didn't watch the last one because I I, I already saw where it was going over his previous three or four, which were and so they're, those brilliant. were all mean, but they were yeah. stand up. They were still stand up. Yeah. This last one, not yeah. so much. Yeah. Well, the, the the previous ones were were brilliant, but at the same time, you're watching this going, man, this is. Like, how many axes are we grinding here, you know? <laughs> well, Dave is complicated for me because, you know, Dave's ultimate goal beyond anything else is the elevation of black people. So, sure. But but to do that, he is increasingly more punching down to do that, which is not necessary. Yeah, yeah. Not. So uh, I support Dave as a patron of of black folks i do not support dave as a patron of himself we all know you're smart dave you're smarter than most of us you don't have to like attack somebody to let us you know know that and be assured of that so stand up Uh, has gone to to a weird place in the modern time i don't know if i could get on stage and do it like it doesn't have to be all blue humor i don't know that i would get up on stage and do a lot of blue humor right now either sure but uh the shock is still part of what I find funny. And a lot of the shock is not what sells right now. Like a lot of the, the old timers from my day or from after my day who still do some stand up on stage. Mm-hmm. If, if their, their core premise is just to uh, shock the audience, they're, they're just doing shit work from now and like shit work purgatory until the end of time. Right. So I started in what, 2000, something like that. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I sort of stopped in 06, but I went a little bit longer. By that time, I'd met my wife, and I was going, you know, I'd go and work a show uh, without her because I, I just really didn't need her to hear all this material. Um, <laughs> so did she? Did she hear a lot of that material that you? Uh, she she did. Were she selling? did. But it's yeah. But you know, at that point, it was you know, I think she's she probably saw every bit one time. And that's probably enough for her. Um, uh, she didn't, you know, when we met, we met like most people, we, we met, well, not like most people, like most people we know, we met in a restaurant, working mm-hmm. in a restaurant. And we got married in 06. And so that kind of ended my run there as a, as a stand-up comedian. I still would pop in and do one here and there, uh, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Yeah, I, no, so I, I, I've been to a few shows here. One was in a laundromat 
is, you know, as a comedian, <laughs> only you would understand that there's a comedy show in a laundromat. Yeah, I've, I've been and, to stuff like that, of course. <laughs> and then another one I went to was in a in a basement club, and it was it was just a, it, it was such a terrible show. I was like, oh gosh. So I think I'll probably keep shopping around, and see what I can find. In the meantime, uh, I continued to tell my stories on an amateur basis. Well, and, let, let uh, me ask you this. Speaking of sure, so. Like any good storyteller, you had a stable of stories that you would tell. And uh, as it is with any aging person, uh, everybody's heard those stories about 15 times. So your experiences basically since, I guess, like near post-Navy days, do you you have modern stories that you've worked into the fold? Like stories that you have since you've moved out to California about dealing with sketchy people to uh, move huge cases of wine or, you know, what have you that are, are now part of the uh, Bride Jabowski canon? That's a great question. I, I think part of, of, of the, the joy of storytelling and of hearing stories is that you have experiences that other people don't have. In one respect, you're not old enough to have many experiences, so every experience is kind of new. And then uh, in another in another respect... But once you just get older, it's just everything kind of becomes repetitious, to be perfectly honest. And so it's hard to come up with new experiences that are worthy of sharing because much of your life becomes, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. I've been out here for 11 years, 11 Mm. years. And I think most of our most of our stories now come when we're on vacation because we are we've purposefully been putting our immersing ourselves in into cultures that are extremely different than our own. We used to always take vacations to English speaking places or Western Europe places where everything is, is the same as here, but maybe the the language is a little bit different. And then in 2011, we ended up in India (laughs) doing Bangalore to, to Kerala to Jaipur to Agra. As far as stories go, yeah, what I will say is that, that, that anybody who's been there can tell you that the roads are absolutely insanity. When I arrived there, it was at 2 in the morning, and I got a ride in from the Bangalore airport to the hotel, and I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. I heard it was crazy. And then the next day, I woke up around noon, and I went outside, and it was in full swing. And you're like, oh, my gosh, we're going to die on these roads. <laughs> Is 1.2 billion people driving fast, or is it just massive congestion? Well, or well, it's it's everything. So so Bangalore at that time was a city of something like two or three million people that was uh, that had grown so fast that the infrastructure was made for about six hundred thousand people. So everything is just unbelievable. It's just a just a just a massive amounts. And then the variety of conveyances. Here's we have, we here we have cars and trucks. Over there's cars, trucks, tuk tuks, ox pulled carriages. These little water powered wagons that I still don't understand the science <laughs> behind. Um, horse drawn this, ox drawn that, and every and there's no real traffic lights or anything like that. And somehow people aren't dying left and right. It's also people just walk out in the traffic, like so you have to watch for them. And you're also dodging cows because the cows are sacred. So they're just wandering in the streets and you have to dodge the cow, not the other way around. And this whole time you're in a car that to save, to save the back seat, the drivers tend to cover the back seat with towels. So you have no access to the seat belts. So you're just like, we're going to die in this fucking thing. 
And um, also, these towels are filthy. They're filthy. Nah, they, they're, <laughs> they're really good about uh, changing them. Uh, wonderful culture. Wonderful, wonderful time. Highly recommend. When uh, Melanie and I, our friend Melanie and I went to um, Costa Rica, sure, we had an off-the-grid adventure that uh, was one of the big Indiana Jones adventures of my life and actually was what I expected because the rest of the trip was just a tourist. It was a tourist trip. We did fun tour stuff and sure. drank a lot and hung out in the hotel and went to nice restaurants and mm-hmm. stuff. But um, we did this uh, this day tour. It was like it was a really nice dude who was a friend of a friend who was like a tour guide, but he liked us. So he took us off the grid and uh, all day long, several times I was like, this is going to be the end, but it's so exciting to die in this mm-hmm. fashion. And yes. um, <laughs> that's what I expect from a, an international trip now until the end of time, unless I'm going to Canada or something. Yeah. Canada was a little sketchy in itself the last time I went, but that's a different thing. The last time, so I was in, well, so I haven't been to Canada since I was in the military. I, we would go to Halifax, Nova Scotia. I forget why we were there for so long. We were in and out of that port for three months, something like maybe more. And we would go to the casinos and we'd make make some money and then we'd lose it all. And I was in the military, so we had very little money. Uh, but we would go to a place called the Liquor Dome. So it's this bar. It's a five story bar. And each story is a different thing. So at the bottom, there's a dance club. Then the next floor up is like a pool hall. The floor above that is like a country and western bar. And then something else. And then at the very top is a karaoke place. And we would go to this place. And we somehow, somehow got in a, a fight started. Because uh, you're military guys. People, because we're military guys. And I think it was a it was an intership rivalry. Like there was another <laughs> ship there that, we, for whatever reason, we didn't like. And there were some Canadian sailors in there too. And eventually, there's stools and furniture flying, and that's usually my cue to 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 get out of there. So it's weird because the place is built on a hill. So you, if you can't get out on the bottom floor, you go up a couple flights, and you can go out the back door and be on a different street. But what ended up happening was is that they, they the police came and this they just surrounded the place. They were like, we're not even gonna try to try to we're gonna let this thing kind of peter out on its own because there's just way too many people involved. And eventually they brought buses and we all got put on the buses and nobody got arrested, but they took us back to our ships and uh, we got uh, we got reamed out. And nobody could go ashore for a few weeks. That's probably uh, standard practice they were used to seeing military dudes, and that's that was the standard practice for handling military dudes. Uh, I don't know. I'd never. We've been in some fights before, but I'd never seen a melee like that. Like that was completely out of control. Broken Uh, bottles and such. (laughs) Broken bottles, everything, everything. Yeah, uh, yeah, broken bones, all kinds of stuff. So that was the liquor dome. This other place we went to was a strip call club, a strip club called the Lighthouse. And it was the weirdest strip club I've ever seen because it wasn't like a stage. It was on the floor, floor level. The stage was floor level and you sat in the round. And um, there was a, a, a glass partition that came up to about knee height that separated you from the from the acts. And you you draped the money over the glass piece. 
<laughs> and if it was coins, because in Canada they have coins, you put the coins on top of the posts. The posts had flat tops and, you know, that were holding up the glass. And they would go and they had this show called The Popsicle Show, which probably doesn't oh. need a lot of description. Oh, my. Oh, my. And, <laughs> and that's in a first world so country. Pop- Very nice. Yeah. So after The Popsicle Show one time, there were so many people there. Everyone was having such a good time that the announcer guy... You know, give it up for Amber and Tiffany, you know. And at the end, he's like, we're going to auction off this popsicle stick. And uh, <laughs> I know. But so we had this guy who was just crazy. So he goes, we're going to start the bidding at $2. Do I hear $2? And this guy stands up and goes, 50 bucks. Like, you don't understand how auctions work. What are you doing? 50 bucks. You don't open with 50 bucks. So he played 50 Canadian dollars for a popsicle that had been somewhere <laughs> did uh, he get the popsicle yeah you know it was just a stick at that point the popsicle was you know had been had, had served its purpose <laughs> oh that is disgusting actually yeah it was disgusting. <laughs> i'm trying to remember the times we had together back then we had such a good time we were driving oh, we around had, we had lots of times we had all kind. i was thinking about it like uh you know just good times yeah. at bogard's back room Bogart's uh, back room was fun because uh, our scene, everybody yeah. that was on our scene would end up there uh, at some point or another. And the move, the room was, was clogged like Calcutta. It was, it was just wall to wall people and sweat and booze and uh, yeah, just and good times and, and cigarette the smoke. Cigarettes. That's yeah. That's when you could just smoke inside to your heart's content. Just lighten them one after another. I, you know, I, I, I had such a good time during those years. There were a couple of, of, of black exploitation movie heroes. You were Richard <laughs> Roundtree and I was Fred Williamson. Yeah, yeah we had a good time. Well, we actually, we were, uh, we were Vince Vaughn and uh, John Favreau. We were just living <laughs> that swingers lifestyle. Yeah, I guess that's probably more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> cool men about town. Yeah. And then we'd do a show and then we'd go get breakfast after a show or we'd uh, do some karaoke after the show. Um, yeah, I still think I know your two songs. I still, I still think of you every time I hear your two songs, which were <laughs> "Creep" by uh, "Creep" by uh, Radiohead and "Volare." Did you? you did yeah, "Volare", Volare right? by, by Dean uh, Martin. Yeah, Dino. Yeah, it's my jam. Stuff that was within yeah. my my very limited vocal range. Yeah, I, I feel you. Yeah, I miss that so, stuff. I miss Fourth Street. Fourth Street is, I think it's gone and been gone for a while but uh i would so we st- we, when we were in town whatever two months ago we stayed at the linden so like right over mm-hmm. and i i remember going by uh, the fourth street diner is gone that's for sure i think the third street diner is now recently gone or recently moved yes i believe that it did close recently yeah so it's amazing it's, I mean, that it's... it stayed open for as long as it did like, who's going to employ all the junkies now that Third Street is gone? Uh, so I can't, I remember coming out of Third Street one night, and I heard this terrific crash. And I look two blocks up, and somebody has obviously been driving at a high rate of speed the wrong way down. They're driving the wrong way down Main Street. So we run over there. His car's flipped over. The other car is flipped onto its side. That he hit, it's flipped on its side, and it's now into the into the pole that holds up the uh, street light. Damn, damn. And the guy got, I know, the dude gets out of his car, he's fine. The guy who caused the wreck, as usual, the guy who causes the wreck is fine. 
And he starts trying to blame the other guy who is messed up. Like his neck is all wrong and he's still in his car. Duh. And so he's trying to go in there and I'm like, dude, you are drunk. And he's like, he's like, yeah. I was like, I was like, you were going the wrong way. And he's just like looking at me. I was like, do you have anything illegal in your car that you need to get rid of? And back into his wrecked car, he goes to get everything out of there. And uh, eventually the cops showed up and uh, we all went home. Yeah. Fortunately, um, Richmond as the, uh, the drunk driver's haven of the East coast. I think mm-hmm. that has gone down significantly with the advent of uh, ride sharing. But uh, oh, good man! It was it was well, so bad. You, it was, and I, my entire life, I've I've saved my white privilege to to deal with the cops. That's the only thing I pull my white privilege out for, and it has gotten me out of two or three where I was probably over the legal limit, and that was just a, a lifestyle that we had back then. And of course, now we'd be like, absolutely not. They didn't look at you lip, and say, "Are you sure? Are are you sure that you can use this white privilege?" Like I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, white privilege. But like, I'm looking at you, and I'm not sure that you can use this white privilege right now. Well, you know, it's when it's dark out, and I'm inside the car. It's hard to tell my ambiguous ethnicity. <laughs> so they can't quite. They're like, this guy. Are we sure this guy's white? <laughs> um, I got pulled over in front of Baja Bean one night. I was on my way to meet the Doug, and uh, I got pulled over in front of Baja Bean. And the cop is doing the thing where they have a conversation with you just to see if you'll trip up. You know what I mean? So you're just like, concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. They're like, oh, I see you got a, you know, a Red Sox sticker on your car. You're like, yeah, the Red Sox. So we have a, you know, we have a 10 minute conversation about the Red Sox. Meanwhile, the people outside of Baja Bean are yelling at the cop, like, let him go. Leave him alone. Let him go. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, do you hear these people? And the cop's like, yeah, don't worry. I'll get them later. <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So the yeah. wine scene is is your the thing. It, it's always been your thing, yeah. but that's your bread and butter uh, now. So yeah. inside that scene, have you had experiences that uh, are worthy of recollecting? The one thing I learned is that, that I can't, I, I try not to turn too many of my passions into my day-to-day job. Because then you you lose the passion. That's kind of uh-huh. one of the things about comedies. I wondered if you're if you're a stand up comedian, and it's a job, do you ultimately start losing interest in it? The, the wine has been the one job that I've had that I haven't lost a lot of interest for what I'm doing, um, because th- there's there's enough diversity. You know, it's it's I'm one of those people who likes unique collectible kind of things, whether it's comic books or base not baseball cards, but a lot of people like baseball cards. Um, yeah, but you get to enjoy the fruits of it, too, directly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. If you find a, a new uh, and unique wine, you get to enjoy the fruits of that, and you get to share it. Well, so that's the thing about wine. is Wine ultimately is the study of, of history and geography. And so if you're into history and geography, then wine is a good place for you. As long as you take it seriously, there's all kinds of stuff. You know, For most people, it's just a way to get fashionably drunk. But for other people, it becomes a, a bit of a quest. And I guess that's where I'm at. Um, yeah, yeah. I just I do not no, partake like I used to. Like the last thing that I could drink on the regular was tequila, and ooh, uh, ooh. yeah, or a, a good tequila is both delicious and it's just less poisonous than a lot of other things to me personally. Like I'll wake up with less I of mean, a hangover, and it's all part of it's all part of the aging process. Sooner or later, you're reaching for the medium salsa. It's just the way it is. <laughs>
So the yeah. last time I really drank tequila was at Sticky Rice. Like I haven't touched it in over ten years because. Wow. Yeah. This, so this is the night where I I got in a fight out out in front of Helen's. I don't remember if you remember this one. I, I don't. I don't um, remember you getting in a a, a fight. Uh I I I don't like to to tell this one because I'm the dick in this story. But uh, it's not a bad story. So I get completely plowed. We we start at Starlight. We go down to Sticky Rice. Uh, drinking tequila all night. It's last call. I leave. I, I'm going back to my car because I'm an idiot, which is parked behind what used to be Avalon. And uh, I'm going by as I'm walking past Helen's. The it's it's last call, so people are coming out. And I thought these two guys said something to me, so I went over there, and I said, "What you know? What the fuck did you say?" And words were exchanged, and then I just started swinging because I'm an asshole, and I was really really drunk. And I was beaten down to the ground because there was like 15 people coming out of Helen's because of the last call. And I was beaten down to the ground. Somebody kicked me in the head. Good Eventually, Lord. some dude picked me up and goes, get the fuck out of here. And so I left and I went and I sat in my car for like five minutes. And then I was like, fuck it, I'm going back. And I went back. <laughs> and this poor guy who I hit the first time is trying to explain to some woman you know, his girlfriend or whatever, what had happened, you know, this asshole came out of nowhere and just started punching him. And I tapped him on the shoulder, he turns around and I punched him again. And then I was beaten so bad. I was, there was a house next door that had a handrail that came down from the porch. I was thrown through the handrail and then kicked while I lay on the ground. And then everybody just disappeared. And this guy what, picks what, me up. What year was this? Clothes. This was in 2007, eight. This guy, this guy picks me up. He's a plain clothes cop. You know, he's got the 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 break the the necklace, you know, with his badge hanging out that he's, mm-hmm. he's pulled out and shot. You know, that's why everybody disappeared. And the cops like, "What happened?" I was like, "Those dudes jumped at me because there was nobody there to refute <laughs> refute what I said." And he goes, "I'll tell you what. If you have somebody pick you up within fifteen minutes, I will not arrest you." See, I told you I saved my white privilege for these moments. <laughs> and and so I called Sarah. And she immediately hung up on me. And so that uh, door, number one, was closed to me because the wife was like, oh, my God, what have you done? And so I called my friend Chris, who lived a few blocks over and had a family and stuff. And he came with the minivan and picked me up at two in the morning or whatever and drove me back to the house in Church Hill. And then I, I went <laughs> I went in the bedroom and I turned on the light and Sarah just looked at me and I had like footprints on my face. And uh, she was not attempting to help me or anything. She was so mad at me. So that was the last time that I drank tequila. Well, that is a lesson learned, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing is I'm not normally an aggro drinker. Like we all have friends who are aggro drinkers. So I was going to ask you to regale us with uh, one of your fa- one that you feel you can tell, but one of your key stories that is also one of your favorite stories. Uh, so let's see. Let's just think real fast about ones that we can tell that won't get us into too much trouble. Okay, like you don't have to tell like the I found a body story or you don't have to tell like the uh, wooden leg <laughs> story. Any of that, oh, but, you know. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's see. Like the uh, <laughs> the, the fight story was pretty good already, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, I'm thinking of two other stories that involve fights, and it's just going to paint myself in a bad way. <laughs> As a belligerent <laughs> drunk. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> so um, when I was younger, I would just, I liked to fight. I, I, I did it for whatever reason. Well, because I was an angry child of adoption, probably. I'm trying to think about the stories that I was able to tell on stage. But it's just making remember instead of instead of the stories I would tell, just the experiences. Do you remember this time when I I jumped into a ceiling fan? Yeah. <laughs> that is that is your where? that is the apotheosis of your career as a stand up comedy uh, <laughs> comedian. That and uh, I'm gonna have to me dragging you off. I, I guess it was your birthday that I had uh, to drag you off the stage when you did the uh, the set where I did the James Brown cape on you and you were drunk as yeah. hell and it was the only way to get you off stage. So drunk. And I I don't think I've ever had a better time doing a set. And I don't remember if it was my birthday or not, but I do remember that I, I don't even know how long I was up there now because I've heard various different reports and uh, it was a long time. And they, they you had to come back up and get me and the band was sent back up. Yeah, they, they tried to and play you off. Yeah. They um, tried to play me off, and I tried to sing along with him. I remember this. And you're like, when... I'm never, I'm never getting off this stage. Okay, so uh, let's see. I'll tell you the story about when we went to Tijuana. See the donkey show. So I, not on this one, not on this trip. <laughs> I was in the Navy in San Diego, <laughs> and then pulled into the parking lot and made it to work on time, barely. So. <laughs> Oh, you're so stupid. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever accused me of of, of of threatening Mensa, you know. Threatening to get into Mensa. Uh, so there's GD that the Navy. Like, I don't know what it is oh, yeah. about being in the military, but everybody's military stories are like that. Yeah, they are. You know, I you know I got stabbed in the Navy. I think I tried to tell the story on stage one time, but it's a very long story. You have told the stabbing... I don't remember you telling the stabbing story on stage, but I've heard the stabbing yeah. story, yeah. Ugh. Right. So the stabbing story is we had been stationed in Charleston, but we were moved up to Norfolk because they closed the Charleston Naval Base in 19-something. 96? Maybe 1996. Here was 1996. It was the Bill Clinton administration, and they were downsizing the military. And one of the casualties was going to be Charleston Naval uh, Shipyard and the Charleston Naval Base. So we're, we've been moved to Norfolk and we're very new to town. We've been there just for a couple of weeks and me and the guys decided to go out and decided to go out and go drinking. Gosh, it's, am I an alcoholic? Well, you know, that's where most of the stories come from as a young man in the military. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Uh, so. So we decided to go out. Uh, two, of the, two of my best friends decided to take me out because I had done this accomplishment and they thought it was worth um, celebrating. I'm, I'm only 20, so I'm using somebody's fake ID. And we go to this karaoke bar called Tokyo Rose, which is also, I think, probably a Japanese restaurant by day in Tokyo, uh, karaoke bar by night. And we're singing all the greatest country and Western hits. And we get really, really drunk. And then we leave at last call. And we're driving back to the base, but we don't, we haven't been there long enough to know intuitively how to get home. And this is before Google Maps or anything. Uh, and so we take a left when you take a right and we end up going down Hampton Boulevard towards ODU. And this car gets behind us and starts flashing the brights on us. And they pull up alongside us and they're throwing beer cans at us and we don't know what is going on. 
So we stop at the corner of 43rd Street and we get out of the car just to be like, hey, what the hell is going on? And uh, and so one of the guys runs around and just starts stabbing people. He stabbed my buddy Noosh uh, seven times, but I didn't know what was going on. They were like, they were in an embrace, it seemed like. And I was just like, I had a hand on either one of their shoulders. Like, come on, guys, let's go. And then I realized the guy stabbed him. So I just start punching the guy in the face. And he turns around and he gets me one time in the abdomen. And I just kind of kept hitting him until he fell on the ground. And his friend came around and picked him up and they got in the car and they drove off. So what was it? Did he take your wallet? What, what, what was the point? No, nothing. Nothing. And it was like a kitchen steak knife. That was the craziest thing, like a wood-handled kitchen steak knife. Like, what are you doing? So the other, the other, our third guy runs up all of a sudden. We're like, where the hell were you? He's like, I had to park the car. And I was like, what? Why, why are you worried about parking the car in the middle of all this? So we pick my other buddy up, Noosh. We pick Noosh up. And he's like, let's go after him. We're like, Noosh, lift the shirt up. So he lifts up the shirts. He's got some intestines hanging out. And we kind of try to remember our medical training. And we're like, okay, you got to stuff those back in there so that they don't get infected or whatever. So we do that, put them in the car. We're still obviously lost. And nobody's got a cell phone. There's no calling 911 or anything. And so we're just like, take a right, see what happens. We drove like two blocks and there's a 7-Eleven with a cop car in the parking lot. And so I get out of the car and I walk over and I knock on the glass and the cops look over and I hold up my shirt and they come running out and they have us lay down in the parking lot with our heads like on the curb. Somebody's elevating our feet. Across the street, it, luckily, is a uh, fire department. So the guys don't even have to get in the truck. They just ran over with their tackle boxes and stretchers and stuff. And then they took us uh, in an ambulance to uh, Centara Hospital. You know, the highlights of that were... Uh, we're not dying. The highlight of that story is, is not not dying. The highlight is probably not dying, yes. But that's where I got my first ever catheter, and probably my only one now that I'm thinking about it. I didn't know what a catheter was. I just said it was very painful, and after it was done, I said, I think I need to pee, and and the nurse said, you already are. <laughs> it's. Uh, I'm trying to remember because... that. Did you? Did they find the guys? No, they never did. No. Of course not. No. If, you ever see, if you see a red so Delta 88, yeah, red <laughs> Delta 88 with a white uh, rag top, that's, uh, that's what we're looking for. But that was, you know, I guess that was 20-some years ago at this point, 25. That was 25 years ago. Holy shit. My, my brain doesn't think it, it, it is, but I, my body gives me near constant reminders that uh, that, that is the case. So it's a new, something new and undignified every day. Yeah, oh, that's, that is how that works. Shit hurts, or you're <laughs> like, oh, I didn't mean to fart right then, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, Brian, it has been a fantastic time having you on the show. I've enjoyed it tremendously. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, of course. Well, as always, if you'd like to talk to me about this episode or the good times that I've had with Brian, you can hit me up on Twitter at JankyOldBrokeHoboSpiderMan at JonathanBlade, and we'll talk to you in the next podcast. Thanks for listening.